Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode with Four Sober Chicks. Actually, today we have a guest, um, Louise Barnett. Um, She is a phenomenal lady that I think has a lot of experience with um, topics and things that we've talked about um, a ton. And and we really like to pull people on here just to give their experience, um, really what their story is, because again, stories are huge for us um, and overcoming, um, especially addiction, but I'm going to read her quick bio just to give you guys an introduction. Um, so she went from struggling with anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, suicide, addiction, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, and borderline personality disorder to completely turning her life around by ignoring the common wisdom, breaking all the rules, reducing all stigmas and turning the mental health model upside down. I think that's huge. Um, For years working in Fortune 100 companies, she developed her strength and used them to achieve success and grow her career, but she never really paused to see how learning and leaning into her strengths would make her feel and how they could be real purpose. She's never felt truly fulfilled through her sobriety and mental health journey. She found her passion and now lives daily living. Now she lives daily living her purpose through acts of service. So Louise, with that, thank you for coming on. Um, we are actually super excited to um, chat with you and hear your story and kind of have a little combo. Amazing. Well, thank you, Meredith, Heather, Dana, Tracy. I have been looking forward to today. It's morning for me. I know it's evening for some of you. Um, so thank you so much for your flexibility and making the time. I love our missions are so aligned. You know, the idea that we can create these survival guides out of our own stories, I think is so powerful. And so I'm so grateful to be here with you today to to kind of hack away at that mission together. So, Well, if you want to just start off and kind of just give us your story, kind of where you've been, where you've come, you know, all the, all the things, and then we can kind of just ask questions at the end and go from there. Yeah, that sounds perfect. That sounds perfect. And please feel free to interject as we go along. Uh, it's, I know, whenever we all think of our own sobriety, mental health story journey, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, like, where do I begin? This could go in so many different directions. And for me, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention just a little bit about how I was brought up because that really directly impacted a lot of my adolescent and early twenties. And I was raised by two immigrants. They came to America from Zimbabwe in the late 70s and raised us three girls. I have two sisters, an older and a younger. And one thing that was really unique about my parents was that they were actually converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so um, commonly known as Mormonism. 
you might hear about. And so being raised in that religion and that church from an extremely young age was something that was incredibly challenging for me. Um, you know, I remember my mom saying like, at age two, I knew you weren't going to make it kind of thing. Um, but what that meant at a young age was that in addition to my family moving up and down the East Coast and dad kind of climbing the corporate ladder and us never setting physical roots and a physical home and foundation, I also felt internally within my own home that I still was a bit of an outsider. And so this was kind of a feeling that I had literally, you know, from a very young child all the way through my adolescence and 20s was this just feeling of not belonging and being an outsider. And I would say that, you know, we'll, we'll skip along to my early teens where we had just moved again um, for the umpteenth time. So I was starting over at a new school and it was my sophomore year of high school. So I was about 14 or 15 years old and I experienced um, a mental health decline, arguably like I've never ex experienced again. And that's when I just sunk into the deepest, darkest depression, um, anorexia crept in, suicidal ideation, self-harm. And I literally, as a 14-year-old sweet girl, you know, had, I saw no way out. Um, and at this time, I had not experimented or touched any drug, any alcohol, nothing. That was just something that hadn't kind of crossed my path or I didn't have an interest in. Um, but when my parents found out that I was cutting and um, sort of in danger, this was very new to them. They didn't have a lot of experience with therapy and mental health world, you know, given their background and where they came from. And so to them, this was very shocking. And I know a lot of people can relate to this because, um, I, I can relate to it with my own nine-year-old. If I were to experience that with my own nine-year-old, I know I would probably feel extremely shocked and not know what to do. Hopefully now a little bit more pre prepared. But at the time, my parents made the choice to, to send me away. And they sent me away to live with a family that we had known growing up, a Mormon family. And I stayed there for a summer. And that experience uh, was traumatic on many levels in the sense that I was kind of ripped away from my family when I needed them the most. And um, I was placed in a family of hypocrisy and I was a victim of sexual assault in that summer. And I came back from that summer and this is something I've learned in retrospect. I didn't realize it at the time, but I very, very actively chose to change everything about who I was. And we all know the Jim Rohn quote, you know, we are the sum of the five people we surround ourselves by. And by God, I was destined to do that just with the opposite effect. So I, you know, within a month of getting home from that 
trip to Utah. I had dumped the old boyfriend, had found the captain of the basketball team, was, you know, dumped all my old theater friends, was now friends with all the popular girls. And we were drinking vodka on the lawn and tripping on mushrooms on the weekends. It happened, you know, virtually overnight, my entrance into this world of numbing and masking and hiding and belonging. I felt like for the first time I belonged to, you know, a community just wasn't perhaps the right community. So you can kind of rinse and repeat these behaviors and accelerate them as I entered my college university years. Um, I have very few memories of my high school years and my college years as a result. Um, but, you know, escalated towards, I wouldn't even say experimenting, but a, a few couple of years with heavy drugs, crack cocaine, again, just kind of surrounding myself by just unbelievable groups of people, dangerous decisions, impulsive decisions. And it was in my early 20s, I started to really make a lot of these really impulsive decisions, like just kind of kooky things like buying dogs on a whim and, you know, staying up for three days in a row without sleep. And um, obviously the people I was surrounding myself by, um, a lot of kind of just dating men, 20 years my senior, just kind of very erratic behavior. Um, all the while still kind of keeping it together, you might say. So I graduated college cum laude. I started an MBA program. So, you know, I'm, a lot of people kind of relate to this idea of that, you know, high functioning. So even in the depth of my like hard drug addiction, I still had some semblance of normal, which I think can oftentimes be a detriment because it allows us to justify a lot of our behaviors. And so I, I kind of, I finished up the MBA program and ended up moving from the East Coast to, Annap from the Northeast to Annapolis, Maryland. And it was at this time, kind of the erratic behavior continued. I was in a long-term relationship that I decided to just end on a whim because I fell in love with somebody 10 years younger than me, just kind of this kind of if you can picture a hurricane, that's kind of my 20s and late 20s. And it was one night in Annapolis and it was actually December 21st. So we're coming up here on an anniversary. And I remember it was a full moon, winter equinox. And I was sitting alone in a new apartment that I had had. I had just left this long-term relationship and was by myself. And I had not a not a lick of furniture. I was sitting kind of on a mattress on the floor and I was staring down at two blue lines on a blue stick. And for those of us who have taken a pregnancy test, I was single and pregnant. And that moment is really pivotal. It was not a turnaround moment. I still had a lot of struggling and challenges ahead of me, but that was the moment where I would say I discovered like a glimmer of hope and maybe just a small piece of my why. There was something else there in the universe, in the world, out, aside from, from me, right, to, to be making decisions for. And 
So I decided to have the baby, the biological decided not to have a part in that. So I was sort of found myself again, you know, alone, single, lacking a community. Um, but with this baby, um, the whole experience was, was not magical. Um, I felt like I had an alien inside of me. I, I hated kind of every second of being pregnant. If, if I'm being honest, I was probably very selfish, um, during my pregnancy and, and, and it was very hard. Um, but I gave birth and the first eight months of motherhood, I, I really flourished. I, um, was not using, I maintained my pregnancy without using. Um, I had started to make a couple of girlfriends that felt like real solid girlfriends. I was growing my career, um, five months pregnant. I managed to get, um, I, I worked 20 years in the hotel industry. So I managed to kind of start climbing my career there and things seemed to be going really well. Um, and then Annabelle would have been about eight months old. I went to a training in Houston for the hotel industry. And so my mom flew over from Africa to take care of Annabelle. And I went to Houston and fell madly in love with a man 17 years my senior. So my habits are kind of starting to repeat themselves again. And there were some signs in that trip that this man was dangerous, um, for lack of really a better phrase, but I chose to ignore them. And within two months I had packed up everything, sold everything and was driving my not even one-year-old baby across the country to move in with this man and his two boys. And within two months of being in Texas, I was in Texas at this point, um, he was in jail. So that's just a very quick version of that story. Um, but needless to say, I had placed myself and my daughter now in an extremely dangerous situation. Um, he is a alcoholic like I've never experienced or seen before, um, amongst other things. So once again, um, damsel in distress, Louise, right? Um, still not really willing to take full ownership for a lot of these things, um, felt sorry for myself, felt alone, felt scared, felt broken. And, um, but was forced into a situation where I needed to really get myself out of it. Um, my parents wanted nothing to do with me. I had destroyed all my credit moving to Texas. I had no money and I had this beautiful little baby girl. And so this is pivotal for me because this is when I, I really learned how to be scrappy. Um, and, and this is when I learned that I can put, do anything I put my mind to without question. Um, because I did, I got an apartment in the wrong side of town. I found childcare. I upgraded my career again. I, you know, when put under the gun managed to, again, have that face of, of somewhat success and normalcy. Um, but at this time, Annabelle's probably two or three years old. Um, I know so many of us can relate to that shift in our consumption. I had started drinking again once I had moved to Texas. Um, but once I was on my own, really on my own, I shifted from those happy hours and, you know, company events and, you know, date, you know, girls nights, 
uh, with coworkers to maybe having a couple of drinks at a happy hour and then going home and drinking a couple of bottles of wine. Um, so that shift, which so many I know can relate to of alcohol being something of a celebratory piece turning into something that really truly was masking and numbing and hiding. And this spiral really went down hard and fast. And I found myself again, 15 years later, not finding a reason to be on this earth um, and, and not finding a reason to stay. And so by the grace of God, my father did fly over from Africa um, to stay with Annabelle so I could check myself into another inpatient um, mental health facility. Um, and it was at this time in 2015 that a doctor listened to me. And I say that because so many medical professionals are amazing and wonderful and they do listen, but so many also don't. And I was fortunate enough. I had been in the mental health system my whole life. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have somebody really, truly listen to me. And it was at that time that I received finally, fortunately, like celebration, my bipolar one and borderline personality disorder diagnosis. And this was huge for me because while it didn't change any of my past, it helped me to understand so much more of it. Um, and so that was a, a really huge, huge piece for me. But I wasn't over yet. You know, I still decided to continue my drinking and, and continue my erratic dating and that kind of thing. I was medicated too, so that probably wasn't helping things. And fast forward a few years later in 2018, I, um, I met a man um, and I met him in a really organic way and I knew he was special and we started dating and then we started living together. And it was when we started living together that I realized how much of my behaviors I allowed myself to go get away with because I had always been alone. And while my spoiler alert, he's now my husband, um, while my husband never said a word, he never ever asked me to change my behaviors or made a comment about my drinking. What it did do was force me to put a mirror to myself and my own behaviors, because all of a sudden the behaviors that I was doing before, I all of a sudden now had to hide and to sneak. And, you know, it, it took on this, this really battle of, in my mind of its own. And this was when, you know, cognitive dissonance, we hear about, you know, your, your mind wants something, but your body's doing another. And so it, to me, was really the definition of insanity. Um, and our new relationship, which had just sort of begun, I could already see falling apart. Um, my relationship with my daughter had, you know, was mediocre at best. And so this is when my journey began. And my journey did not begin with a goal. It did not begin with the desire to become sober. It didn't begin with something specific at all. It just started with a feeling. And the feeling was that feeling of feeling lost, broken, scared, alone, and knowing that if I didn't do something about it, I could see the rest of my life exactly where it was going to go. And so I started, you know, what I describe almost as five minutes at a, at a time. Um, I, I, I dove into self-development and I started five minutes at a time 
I woke up at 5.55 instead of six o'clock. I did five minutes of meditation instead of nothing. I wrote in my journal for, you know, five minutes instead of nothing. And before you knew it, like five turned to 10, turned to 30, turned to 60. And all of a sudden I've read, you know, over a hundred books, journals, you know, up the wazoo, you know, hours of meditation and the destination manifested itself. So after about six months, alcohol just became less important to me. It didn't have the same hold that it had on me six months prior. It didn't mean I was sober. It still, still meant that I was struggling, right? With a lot of these thoughts and making the rules and everything. And it was probably about two months later after a very intentional night of drinking with um, adult friends that I got home. We probably got home around 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. And, um, you know, you always need one more. So I like coerced my husband, you know, he's my husband now at this time. And I said, come on, let's just have one more. And, um, I remember taking a sip of it and I remember it tasted disgusting. I remember it just tasted awful and I dumped it out and anybody listening or, you know, this beautiful crew here today, we know that we do not throw away alcohol in our active addiction. Um, and so I knew in that moment, I knew I was done. And uh, the next morning, um, raging hangover, you know, the whole nine yards. And I kind of went to the landing on our staircase. We had a big open concept. And I looked down at my husband and I said, I am done. I am effing done. And that was the last time I took a sip of alcohol. And that was really when, you know, the rest of what I describe, you know, radical acceptance um, stepped into my life. And within six months, I had already started to do work with Hilton um, Human Resources, you know, advocating for addiction awareness, mental health awareness. And I realized that while as huge a, Hil a company Hilton is, I was still in a very small pond and um, ultimately with the, you know, grace and compassion of my leaders ended up getting my certification and parting ways gracefully with the industry. Um, and I'm now here doing what you ladies are doing as well, just creating sur survival guides out of our stories. So that that's the short version, but it brings us to today. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have so many notes. Um, <laughs> Well, first off, thank you, because I know, you know, your term radical acceptance. I, I genuinely feel like this day and age, choosing sobriety, um, choosing to get help, the mental health awareness, the whole nine, I feel like you got to be kind of edgy <laughs> in order to um, come off as that strong, independent survivor, you know, mm -hmm. like you got to have the grit. I, you said scrappy and my term is grit, but I you do have to have that. And you definitely do. So, um, thank you for your story. Um, it's amazing. Every time we have someone on here, the journeys are completely different, but they're so similar at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I can pull bits and pieces out of your story and be like, me too. Yeah, me too. And then also in my mind, I'm all about stories because at the end of the day, if I ever come across someone who needs help and maybe it's something I've never experienced, but I heard a story, I can now bring that person's story to light. You know, so for me, it's that education factor too. Yeah. Um, but 
the one thing that I underlined that I truly believe is the behavior that you have will always catch up to you. It will always catch up. Now, whether you're willing to accept that and have that feeling and decide to make a change, that is that pivotal moment, you know, Mm -hmm. because the minute the behavior catches up, you, you literally have choices to make. If I did not make the choice that I made, I don't know where I would be. I Mm -hmm. honestly don't know if I would be married. I don't know if I would be alive. I don't know if my alcohol addiction would have stemmed into hardcore drug use. Like I I can go any which way, but the behavior will always catch up always. And it will always impact something in your life. You know, whether it's work, your marriage, your kids, no matter what it will, it will do that. So that was my big, my big thing that I underlined. And then also I can't tell you how many times someone tried to hold up a mirror in front of my face. And it, when it was someone else holding up that That's mirror, weird. I was like, you are crazy. How dare you? Or you're, you're the one who has the problems. But the minute I held the mirror up to my face, I was at that point where I knew I had to take a really deep look. Um, but it's, it's funny. You can try to hold the mirror up for other people. And until they do it themselves, it's 90% of the time, not, not useful. So those were my little tidbits. Thank you. I love what you're saying about behavior catching up to you. And I want to like, I want to see that and take it a step further because I ended my story kind of probably too soon because like the work is never done. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in sobriety, and I will speak for myself, obviously, like I opened up Pandora's box of a shit show, like, (laughs) you know, and so like we spend the next, like, let's not pretend it's not sunshine and and rainbows, right? Like right away. Absolutely not. There's a lot of that there. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done. And to your point, the behavior, right. Potentially is ingrained in us to the point where the work needs to continue. And I know so many of us have our different journeys on, on, you know, where we subscribe to, to continue that work, but that is a huge piece of it. It is not just enough to get sober. Right. No, No, you have to, you have to work every single day and you have to recommit every single day. Like we say that all the time. This is not a, you quit drinking and your life is sunshine and roses. Yeah. If anything, it gets harder because yeah. well, you've got to start to dive into a lot of yucky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Louise, what you said, and so similar to my story is I used alcohol to numb, right? Mm-hmm. Death, loss of business, break, my heart was broken. You know, all those things, what I chose to do was, you know, deal with it with alcohol, which essentially meant didn't deal with it. Yep. Um, and, you know, here I'm sober and I still go through those things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still going, you know, you go through life. It's, it's these stress points or these breaking points. And it's like, you know, so it is, it's a lifestyle that we've chosen. And for me, it's, it's, uh, it's, I'm so much better for handling these situations, although it's hard right at that moment, but I understand I got to let it burn, got to go through it. And then, you know, it, it's so much better sober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, and and we arguably, 
like we neglected it for so long. So the oh, yeah. work that we should have been doing in our, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, however, you know, wherever we are on our journey, that work is now beginning, right? So so my bipolar one and my borderline, you bet there's a lot of work to be done there, right? Take aside the alcohol. Um, and so it's like, here I am now, 40 in 11 days, um, 12 days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exciting. <laughs> um, and just Happy kind of birthday. starting that journey because I neglected yeah. it for so long. Well, and that's another thing I think that I can relate to you is when you had, it sounded like knowledge is power. Like finally, mm -hmm. someone had told you what was going on with you. So then you're like, okay, now I can learn how to manage it. Now I can learn how to, you know, get better. Yeah. And so you've done that with your mental health issues and, you know, and we're doing it with our sobriety. So it's, um, I can tell, I can, I heard your story, a lot of it, and I can relate. So thank you so much for sharing it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for sharing. I, I did, I did resonate that I had, I took a lot of notes too. I was like Meredith, I'm like sitting there violently <laughs> writing down everything. Um, but the one thing that really did, that um, stood out to me and the, the other women here will, will recognize that right away is you were so excited to bring it to your corporate arena, right? Your addiction mm -hmm. awareness, your, um, the passion and excitement that you found in your sobriety, that it's not like you wanted everybody to know that you were sober and you were in recovery. It was that you wanted everybody else that had the same issues to be in, in recovery mm -hmm. and find that sobriety for themselves and figure out how to bring that. And, um, that's what I've been doing in my corporate space. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's such a, it's an exciting place to be. So that really, um, that passion really stood out to me. So thank you for bringing that to Hilton. Wow. And um, hopefully they they were able to incorporate that somewhere and start building on it, even though you're not there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, you, you, everybody thinks their own industry drinks the most, right? But, it, you know, like, but the numbers don't lie. It's just one in 10, roughly, right? It changes, but like, it's just one in 10. And so I thank you for doing the work you're doing with your organization. And like, for me, it just was, I felt like I had uh, so much of my drinking behaviors were so heavily influenced by my industry. Um, I was in sales, right? I was traveling the world, entertaining clients, all these things. And so for me not to address that immediately back where I felt I was impacted so severely would have been a disservice. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you yeah. for doing. Sorry, baby. Um, I definitely resonated. I resonated with your story in a very different way. Um, I felt like you were telling my mother's story mm. and I've shared here before mm. that my mom um, lost her battle to addiction and she had all of these kind of similar erratic behaviors and multiple relationships and falling in love with, I mean, you know, I get a phone call, Hey, you want to talk to your new stepdad? And she's married this like cocaine dealer. Oh, awesome. Gosh. That's definitely what like, you know, a, but she's also like, top of her field and starting companies and like um just a really uh dynamic woman who was very mentally ill and used substances so I think that one masks the other right so I hear a lot in your story of like this erratic behavior but what could you attribute it to a lot of people probably dismiss dismissed it right like this is just how she is or you know she's drinking too much or whatever 
And I think that that's kind of a point that I want to highlight here is that addiction and mental illness are huge co-occurrences as well as trauma, right? You also kind of talked about trauma and we personally don't necessarily see it as well because you're living it. You're just surviving. That's all you're kind of getting through. But I also think the people around us that can support us don't see it as clearly because it's so complicated and we need to, and the mental health professionals, the physicians need to get better at hearing those different pieces because um, a lot of people get dismissed um, for, because it doesn't, it, they all hide one another, right? Mm -hmm. And thank God for your tenacity. Thank God that all those pieces came together at that moment that you made a decision to call your parent and go to treatment. My mm -hmm. mom didn't make that decision because she, she'd blown up her relationship with her parents and couldn't call them when she needed them. And um, so her story was different. Why the stories are different at different places, why we lose so many people, I think it's because a lot of this stuff gets missed for so long. You know, my mom had three suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. This is back in the day that mental health didn't exist. She was sure. just spirited. You know, she yeah. got pregnant at 15. She just liked boys. You know, it's like, no, yeah. we don't. <laughs> like, you're yeah. just watching the reality of this. Why is she, you know, like, um, but I think that in, in, by telling our stories, you telling your story, all of us telling our story, maybe someone will hear something and either see themselves in it or see someone they love and say, you know what, maybe there's more to this than you just yeah. drink too much. Like, mm -hmm. Um, so I really wanted to kind of bring that point together because um, it took me a very long time to piece all that together of what was happening in, in my childhood and what I was seeing. Um, and I think that's important. So thank you very much for sharing kind of that element of it. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that too, Heather. And it made me think of individuals, depending on where you get caught in the system, so to speak, how tragic it is that so many individuals struggling with addiction, for example, they, they're more likely to get in trouble with the law, perhaps. And the law is directing them to drug addiction, you know, inpatient or, you know, whatever they're prescribing in that instance. And to your point, what about the conversation about mental health? Because mm -hmm. nine times out of 10 here, there's going to be another piece to that puzzle. And so how, and this is like maybe a project we can all start to work on for the rest of our lives, but like, how can we integrate those two together? Like they have to be talking to each other. Um, they can't be separate. Well, and yeah. even at the core of being an alcoholic, your cognitive ability your what is going on in your brain is not good. You, you know what I mean? So even on yeah. the basis of addiction, you do have mental issues, yep. period. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people, it's the work hard, party hard. It's the, yep. you know, it's one feeds the other. But at the end of the day, I mean, like, because <clears throat> my, what I love to look into is the neuroscience of addiction. Like mm -hmm. the more you drink, the smaller your brain gets like yeah. legit. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Now your capacity to process things in a maybe clearer emotional state are completely, you're, you're not even able to do that, yeah. you know? So 
knowing like, that's my big thing. I'm like, you drink as like what it's doing to your brain, like your most vital organ of your mm-hmm. entire body, excluding your heart. Yeah. Like you, it's mind blowing what it does. But at the end of the day, addiction is going to lead in so many other realms and it will mask every single time yeah. because I thought I just had an alcohol problem, yeah. but when the alcohol went away, I was still having issues, you know, I, exactly. So mentally I was not there, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, again, thank God I had a doctor that listened. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something, my mind is something that I constantly have to work on. Mm. And I really think that's the, the difference, sorry, Tracy, between, uh, sobriety and recovery, Mm -hmm. you know, like, we can take away the substances and that's really hard initially, but then you have to deal with everything else. And maybe you've never had a tool like, or you've had the same tool for all the problems. Right. And we don't fix a house with one hammer, you know, like you have to build the tools and, and Mm -hmm. unless you have someone on that journey or you, you do, there's so many different ways. I love how you said that, like that we all kind of prescribe to a different format for healing um, but if you don't get on that journey, then you will repeat that cycle again and again. Yeah. Louise, I wanted to ask you, how is yeah. your relationship with Annabelle? Oh, sweet Annabelle. I know. <laughs> well, I to... I love... <laughs> sweet Annabelle. Nine going on 19. Um, okay. No, she's, you know, I think it was one of the first joys of sobriety that I was lucky to experience was motherhood because up until my sobriety, I very genuinely did not know that joy of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'll never remember like, just like, well, I'll, I'll never remember the night where, uh, I went to kiss her goodnight and she said, Oh no, mommy, don't kiss me. You stink. Um, that was kind of towards the end when I, I, was very, you know, grappling with getting sober to then fast forward, you know, several months later where I enjoyed the experience of that time of, you know, spending with my daughter, putting her to bed, you know, at the time, probably still reading storybooks, you know, that kind of thing. And I was so, as a result of my mental illness and my addiction, I was so selfish for so many years and, uh, you know, putting her first was just something I regrettably didn't do. And so to be able to do that now um, and to do that with balance as well and to, you know, put my husband first, put myself first and put my daughter first and somehow do that all at the same time is really special. I do worry about her. I'll be honest. Um, She she portrays a lot of really similar characteristics um, to myself at a young age. Um, so it, there's definitely some proactive work that I'm doing with my team, um, just to make sure that we're kind of, you know, keeping things in check and being aware if there are any kind of bigger issues at bay. Cause, but I, I feel hopeful and confident that I'll be better prepared. Um, I love it. And that's, and that's what you said (laughs) when you found out you're pregnant is you felt that first shimmer of hope. Mm-hmm. So she's very lucky to have you and to have your um, experience and, and, and also your boldness to be open about it and to 
not ignore it and to deal with it and manage mm-hmm. it. So, um, yeah, kudos to you. You're a good mama. <laughs> so, my mom um, was a hardcore alcoholic. So mm-hmm. I was Annabelle. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a mother who did not put me first. You talk about abandonment issues. Um, a lot of the stuff that I deal with to this day is based on my childhood. Um, so, and my mom passed away without ever not, not owning it, but, um, she couldn't be proactive. She couldn't look at me and say, you're exhibiting just what you said. You know, you're exhibiting things that are concerned to me. Mm -hmm. Um, we should be proactive. Like I never got that. And I swore I would never be an alcoholic, but I ended up the exact same way. Not, not the exact same way. I ended up on my alcoholic journey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, I think that that's absolutely huge because I come from a family of very addictive personalities, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was something that was my big aha moment where I was like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, but for me as a 35 year old adult, you know, when I quit drinking, well, it was younger than that, but, um, I had to do sincere. I was like, I thought I should have had all this shit figured out by now (laughs) in my, you know, adult years, I have three kids and I got to just start figuring this shit out. Um, so it was, it was big. And, and I, I'm, I think the biggest thing that I'm doing for my daughters is I am just as proud and vocal about my addiction mm-hmm. and about my recovery mm-hmm. as I am with anyone else face to face. So yes. like we talk about that. Mm-hmm. We talk about other parents when they drink, when they're over their house, you know, and, and, and things like that to where they have a very crazy world that they are going to mm-hmm. be going into. And I, it's my job to make sure that they're mm-hmm. prepared. Yeah. As well as to teach them how to ask for help. You know, I also was in active addiction when my kids were, (laughs) excuse me, younger. And, you know, I really struggled with that a lot. And, you know, when I was in treatment, I was like, you know, I don't want my kids to become addicts. And, you know, I was just really stuck on this. And someone in, in treatment said, actually, statistically, children of people who are in recovery have a less chance of becoming active inactive addiction because their parents are having frank conversations they are role modeling recovery they are role modeling what it looks like to not live in this fake ass um facebook world that like things are hard and we fall down and we ask for help and these are the steps to pick yourself up i mean that's real lessons and i had to like talk about radical forgiveness i had to forgive the mom that i thought that i should have been um and accept like the mom that I am and the lessons that I've taught my kids. And we, we all are, you know, have that opportunity with our families in recovery and um, with our children. And that's the legacy we can pass on. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a, it took I'm me a while sure. to get to there. <laughs> right. Still well, and it's hard to feel like, I feel like it's we're hard still to getting know. there. <laughs> it's hard oh, to know the, the line, because I think like probably everybody in this room right now is clearly so passionate about recovery. So it's like, how far do you take it with your kids? Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, I want to be open and well, honest. 
Like, well, for is there me, a line? Well, for me, my daughter's 24. She'll be 25. And she is not a drinker like me. I don't think she's an alcoholic, you know, or yet. Or I don't know. It's lame. I don't, she has definitely, there's, my mother was an addict. My sister, I, you know, but we, you know, it, there's definitely, it, it is in our family. It is in her genes and it, it could happen. But for right now, as long as she, I mean, she is such a, she just went through a breakup and she went to have happy hour after work and she left because she didn't want to drink because she, she kind of knew. And I think one, she's already aware of that and very mature and responsible, but she has seen and heard me and how it's affected me. And I tell, and and I tell her, I'm like, Libby, just be careful right now with drinking because you're already upset and you're depressed and this is a depressant and it's going to amplify whatever you're feeling. So just be careful, you know, and this is not the first conversation. So, you know, um, I think you just have to respect them for, you have to trust them. You have to respect them. Um, and you just got to be there, you know, and, and if they're thriving and making good decisions, celebrate it and be like, good job. Uh, always be a mom though. Right. And, you know, yeah. When you go to a party, cover your drink, um, you know, don't yeah. ever sit your drink down. I mean, but that was instilled with her a long time ago. For me, you know, alcohol, I, I think I put, I put fear into her with, when it came to alcohol, because I, I mean, a lot of things happen to women when they're under the influence and their judgment is impaired and they are taken advantage of. Um, and so I, uh, I did want to make her very aware of that. So... Yeah. I 100% believe that recovery is the first step to break, breaking the generational cycle, yeah. hands down. Um, and I feel like the more people that are in recovery, like I do, I do 100% feel the statistics will prove that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's hope. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Well, I know. We could probably talk so for much. hours. <laughs> <laughs> But we so appreciate you taking the time um, out of your um, day morning um, to come visit with us. And hopefully this isn't the last. So thank no. you so much. We appreciate thank it. you. Thank you so much. So happy yes, to be nice. here with you. Good. And Louise, Thanks. before we uh, before we just uh, tell us where we can find you on Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Probably the easiest is www.louisebarnett.com. That'll lead you to everything else. <laughs> All right. Okay. Wonderful. Thank awesome. you. Thank you for what you're Thank doing, you. Louise. We appreciate Thank you. Thanks, guys. You're a cool sober chick. Yes. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at four sober chicks that's number four sober chicks we welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode